0: Good to see you all. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico, and yes, it is Advent. And so we are going to hit pause on our series in Galatians, and we're going to pick up a series that focuses on Advent. And for Advent this year, what we're going to do is we are going to actually try to get to know Jesus a little bit better. And so we're going to look at a um, text from Philippians that is a rich and full text. And we're going to be looking specifically at what it shows us about who Jesus is in four different movements of his life. And so as Chris Cupid said earlier, the movements are that Christ has come. He was born. He took on human flesh. That Christ has died. That he died on a Roman cross that Christ is risen, he resurrected from the dead, and that Christ will come again. And we're doing this because I think it will help us understand what Christmas actually is all about. And that can be really difficult living in a modern age where there's a lot of other stuff that goes on around Christmas. It's easy to kind of forget about that and What I want us to do is to recover why Christmas exists in the first place. And so we're going to look at his birth, his death, his resurrection, and the second coming. And so we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. And today I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 so that we have a fuller context. But we're really going to be focusing in on verses 4 through 11 over the course of the next few weeks. So you can turn with me. You can also follow along. Um, The words will be on the screen. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that we can read this, that we can be fed by it, that our souls can be encouraged, that this life, this world, our lives, they're not about us. They're about displaying the beauty and the riches of the grace of your Son. God, I ask that you would help us to see that clearly this morning. I ask that you would show us our need for this Savior. Show us your joy in providing him. And show us your glory in how it will be fully revealed at his return. And pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. So I used to work as a counselor before I came on staff at the church. And around this time, maybe a little bit before, starting kind of at the end of November, my schedule would get really full because the holidays are hard, They're hard on people's mental health. They're hard on relationships. They're just hard. And I've wondered about that. It's always kind of confused me because, you know, on one hand, we have, like, all these pretty things happening, lots of lights, lots of events that should be very happy and celebratory. And then on the other, we have a bunch of people who are just kind of feeling empty and dead inside. And I think, honestly, that's one of the reasons for it, is that we think that Christmas is this time where we kind of just exist in jubilant joy and ecstasy, and we get to kind of show off who we are in different ways. So one of the ways that we do that is by going to these events and kind of like, showing off who you are to other people, maybe coworkers or friends, acquaintances, family, right? You want to put on your best face, you want to have a good time, you want to pretend maybe that everything's going okay or that you're like you've got everything in life pretty together. Or in gift-giving, right? There's pressure to give gifts to all of these people. And it's if we're honest, The gifts aren't actually about who they are. But a lot of times the gifts we give are about who we want to have people think that we are. And so we might spend a little more money than we should. We might overextend ourselves buying something that we probably don't have the money to buy. Right? And so it creates kind of this disconnect or discontinuity between our inner selves and the outer world that we're existing in. And so one of the things that is refreshing about going back and getting back to the real essence of this season is that there's room for humility. Not only is there room for it, but it's mandatory to actually understand Christmas in the right way you have to understand humility. And humility is something, I think, in recent years that has kind of experienced a little bit of a renaissance or even maybe a discovery culturally. I think if you go to most people in the Arlington, D.C. area and you kind of like just wanted to get their response to, like, what do you think about humility? People are probably going to say, oh, yeah, humility is a good thing. Like, pride is bad, arrogance is bad we like humility. We want to see people who are in touch with their brokenness, with their vulnerability. We want to see other people who are humble. But what what about when it comes to being humble? Being a humble person yourself, do we have the same desire? And so as we look at Jesus's birth, Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, he really grounds the work of Christ, starting with the incarnation, in this idea, this exhortation to the Philippian people to have the humility in Christ. Have this mindset. What kind of a mindset? It's a mindset of humility. It's not counting others more or counting others as more than yourself, it's looking out to the interests of other people. At all times. And so, as we look at this text and kind of consider this relationship between incarnation and humility, we're going to look at how the incarnation, Jesus' birth, it proves our humility. It's a proof of humanity's humility. And then we're also going to see how Jesus' birth, and also then the rest of the work he did, it's a pattern. For our humility. So it's a proof and it's a pattern. We're gonna first start with it being a proof. And before we answer that question how does Jesus' incarnation prove humanity's humility? We have to first be very careful that we understand what the incarnation is. Because I think most people understand it as a word that churches use to describe the birth of Jesus. And some people might even say, yeah, it's when God became man. And that is true, but we actually have to be even more precise. And so Philippians 2 really gives us the language to express what we mean by the incarnation. And here's one of the ways that it proves our humility, is that this will break our brains. I'm going to read some of the historical documents of how the smartest theologians in the church, the most godly people in the church, came together and wrestled with the meaning of God putting on human flesh. What does that mean? What does it do- what it doesn't mean? I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to watch your faces just glaze over. And I know this because that's, what well, I do every time I read it. It breaks the categories of human language. There's things that we can say, but then when we try and like, understand the depth of them, we just can't. We can't fathom it. And so just the, the event of the incarnation proves that we are creatures, that we're humble, we're limited in our ability to understand the work of God. And so in Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, and again, Paul is directing the Philippians to have unity, and when you have unity, you need humility, right? If you're going to be united to a bunch of other people, humility is the only way that's going to happen. And so he says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, not naturally, not because you're a really good person." but it's yours in Christ Jesus. Who is Christ Jesus? He was in the form of God. Jesus is God. He's not like God. He's not one of many gods. He doesn't have a lot of powers that seem to be similar to the powers of a God. He is God. We're going to stop here for a second because this, if you don't understand, nothing else will make sense (laughs) in the next four weeks, nothing else will make sense. And so I want to use a couple of illustrations for how we misunderstand this idea of Jesus being God and then being born and that happening in one person, two natures in one person is the way that people have kind of described this two natures, very God, very man, one person, Jesus Christ. So here's how you can misunderstand this, and I'm going to use some superheroes to help us connect with this. Now, be kind to me, because I'm not a comic book expert, so I'll probably make some mistakes here. You can email me. That's fine. We can talk about that. But I want to go through a couple of the misunderstandings that people often have when they think about Jesus, when they think about these two natures. And so the first one is Superman, Superman, right? He looks like a human. He goes to work as Clark Kent. Like, everything about him kind of appears to be human. But then, something happens. Somebody needs rescuing, and he goes into the phone booth, and he reveals who he really is, which is not a human, a superhuman. Something more than human. And so in, um, in the history of the church, this is the heresy. It's a false teaching that is known as docetism that affirms, yes, Jesus is God, but he just kind of pretended to be human so that he could do everything that he needed to do. So that's not what this text is saying. He really took on a human nature, a true human nature. Next one that we'll talk about is Thor. Now, I know the least about Thor. But from what I do know about Thor is it's kind of patterned after like the Greek pantheon where there's a lot of gods and Thor is one of those gods and he also has human parents, kind of. And so he is kind of like a human with godlike characteristics. So he's for sure human, but then he's also existing with the other gods. And this form of misunderstanding who Jesus is, it would say, yes, Jesus is very human, but he's less than the Father. He's less than Yahweh. He's the Son subordinate below God the Father. And this is known historically as Arianism. Arianism. It's affirming the humanity. But then saying that actually what happened when Jesus became a human is he stopped being God or he was less than God. And so, again, that is contradicted directly by this text. He was and is and continued to be God. Who took on a human nature. And then the third one, the last one that we're going to do is probably the most popular, the most common, and it's the Batman heresy, which is saying like, Batman, he's an awesome dude, and he's not at all God. He doesn't have any special powers. He's got a cool story, but it's, an, it's a lifting up of his humanness and a complete neglect or denial of there being any kind of supernatural or divine power about him. And so this would be when people would say, yeah, like Jesus, I think he's a, he's a great guy. Like me and Jesus are friends. He was a great teacher. He was a great moral example. But like he never said that he was God. He was not God. He was just a man. Why can't we just have him be a man? And so this is more of like a humanitarian heresy where it just is saying like, okay, Jesus is just our example. He's just the teacher. And again, this is directly contradicted by that. And so all of those are kind of like different ways of misunderstanding what's happening in the incarnation. So now it's time for your eyes to glaze over because we're going to read a couple of different ways that the church has tried to articulate this. The first is from the Nicene Creed, made at the Council of Nicaea or after the Council of Nicaea. And the second one is the Athanasian Creed that is based on a lot of the writings and teachings and understanding of who Jesus is of Athanasius, who was an old church father. And so these are all very early on in the history of the church, like fourth century documents. And so these go back and try and articulate the understanding of the church as it had developed since Christ ascended. So here is the Nicene Creed, trying to describe this reality. One Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Who, for us men and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. So, that statement, very careful to affirm absolutely that Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh, right? This is what was so offensive about. Jesus' teaching, is he would appropriate Old Old Testament scriptures speaking about Yahweh and would say, these apply to me. And so it really upset the Jewish tradition, because God is one, and he certainly is not human. So for a human to say, I am Yahweh, broke their categories. They couldn't comprehend it. And at the same time, the creed also affirms he is born incarnate. I don't know if this is the root of this word, but I think of like carne asada or con carne, right? (laughs) With meat. He was born with meat, real human flesh. He was born and he had a mom. But he didn't have a dad born of Mary of the Holy Spirit. So that's the Nicene Creed. Well, that clarified some things, but not everything. And so they had to continue to wrestle with this and talk in more specifics and detail about this reality of two natures in one person. And so this is from the Athanasian Creed. That we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And he is man from his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely man. With a rational soul and human flesh. Equal to the Father as regards divinity. Less than the Father as regards Humanity. Although he is God and man, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one man is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and man. And I think that last part is a really helpful way of us understanding what's going on here. Humans are composed of our bodies and our souls, and yet we are one. Jesus is composed of his divinity and post-incarnation, his humanity and yet is one. It's a mystery. It's a profound, beautiful mystery. This is who we worship. This is the God that we love. So just intellectually, it humbles us because it brings us to the brink of human understanding. But then you have to ask the question, what on earth would make God the second person of the Trinity. Take on the form of a servant. He was complete. He lacked nothing. He was in perfect, loving harmony with the Father and the Spirit. And yet, Philippians tells us that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a human Of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death. So when God the Son took on flesh, was born, he came into a world under curse. He came into a world of suffering, of despair. He lowered himself and made his human nature. Susceptible to persecution, to oppression, to hunger, to thirst, to pain, to grief. Why on earth would he do that? Well, he did that because the whole story of humanity illustrates the failure of humanity to live up to what they were created for. They were created to be stewards of God's creation they were created to do what Jesus ultimately did which is to not try and strive to be God but to use their strength to create kind of a harmonious abundance for all of creation to share to spread to seek the flourishing of everyone else but instead Adam and Eve they tried to become like God They strove to grasp divinity, and so they failed. And ever since that time, humanity has illustrated over and over and over again that we cannot live up to our calling. We've lost it. It's gone. No human who exists by ordinary generation or ordinary reproduction is able to please God. And that's what we were created for, to enjoy God, to have him enjoy us. And so the fact that the Son of God had to take on human flesh, it outs us, it outs us, it outs every single one of us as failures, as sinners, as rebels. Because the situation was so bad, the problem was so bad, that the Son of God left his happy home to come to a cursed earth. So we are humbled. We're exposed. We're in a state of humiliation. But we don't like that. (laughs) So we still, to this day, all of us, we try to find ways to not need Jesus to have come. And so I'm just going to use the rubric that is in front of us, this rubric of humility of even Paul exhorting the Philippians to be humble, and I'm just gonna show us like, okay, we try and do this apart from Christ all the time. We do. We read the even as Christians, we read the Bible and we think, oh, okay, I saw this bumper sticker and it, it's like, it makes me twitchy. But it's a it's like a little acrostic Bible, and then it said basic instructions before leaving Earth, right? Like, oh, that's clever, but it's totally wrong, <laughs> totally wrong. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Okay, let's go with that for a minute. Let's read the Bible like that. Let's hear what Paul has to say of us. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in everything, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so we think, okay, basic instructions before leaving earth. We can do this. Right? This isn't that hard. I'm a good, selfless person, so I am just going to be humble, and I'm going to think other people as more important than me. And we do an okay job of this, depending on who we are. I don't do a great job of this because I'm selfish, but maybe some of you um, do a pretty good job of this. But then something happens. Something happens that exposes what's really at the core. It exposes your lack of humility. Maybe it's the seventh time that your infant was up in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden, you find it very hard to consider the interests of that infant above yourself. And so you get angry. You get frustrated. You grumble. You don't think, oh, I can't wait to go and serve my baby who needs me. And you fail. And you don't use your strength for weakness. Or maybe it's that neighbor that you have that you just really hope every time you get home is not out. Because inevitably, as you talk to them, they turn the conversation to their very boring life. And they just keep talking to you. And it's like, I just want to go home and eat and use the bathroom. And you're like talking my ear off. And so, like, you know, when you first are new to the neighborhood or the apartment, like the first few interactions, you do a good job of, like, kind of like, okay, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to consider this person, the needs of this person, I'm going to be a good Christian. And then after a while, you're just doing everything you can to avoid them. And you're realizing, oh, I'm not very humble. And so, just using this rubric of humility, I hope you can see that we fail this all the time. But there's another way that I think that we fail this. And this is when circumstances in our life humble us and we become weak. And we don't let other people serve us. We don't let other people use their gifts to help us. We just kind of pretend like we're okay. We put out that external, that mask of having everything together. Or we just kind of disappear until we get everything together. And then we'll reappear when we don't need help. See, I think for us, our church specifically, me, I'm much more comfortable with like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm in a pretty good place, so I can, I can help other people. But what I think I know for me, and probably for a lot of you, really struggle with, is receiving help, is in receiving because you have nothing, because you're in need. And friends, I just have to tell you, that's pride. That's pride. But the good news of this passage is that we also have a pattern for what humility looks like. We have a pattern for how to humble ourselves, a pattern for how to, To destroy our pride. And that's why Paul says that this is a mind, it's a mindset that is yours, and it's yours in Christ Jesus. And so here is the pattern that humility gives us it's everything that we've just talked about, it's the reality that God humbled himself. became hungry. He lowered himself. He became dependent and needy. And so it sets us free of needing to pretend like we don't need. Needing to pretend like we're not weak. Needing to pretend like we're not broken. Needing to pretend like we're not sinners. Because we have the pattern that Jesus sets before us. And it's a pattern that runs in direct contradiction to our pattern, our natural pattern, humanity's natural pattern. And I want to read you something from Isaiah and contrast it with a quote that Augustine um, writes about Jesus. And as you see this pattern, I want you to pay attention what happens internally, what happens in your soul. Okay, so this is Isaiah 14, and I want to read a little bit about what Isaiah says, hey, you, you exiles, you captives, one day you are going to be able to take this message to the king of Babylon. Now, the king of Babylon is like humanity's champion. He is the conquering king. He is the strongest human on the face of the earth. He is the king of kings, humanly speaking. And this is... How God describes him. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, O king of Babylon, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you, you're cast out from your grave." like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced with the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot, you will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land, and you have slain your people. So that's the description of a king, a person, a human who in our human strength want to attain, want to exalt ourselves, want to lift ourselves up. We want to use human strength for our own benefit. It's an example of the proud. And friends, it's the same pride that exists in us. It's the same pride that doesn't want our friends or our Christian brothers and sisters to see us in need and so hides until we're strong again it's the same pride but now listen to this this is written about jesus it's kind of a a reflection on this beautiful passage in philippians man's maker was made man that he ruler of the stars might nurse at his mother's breast that the bread might become hungry the fountain thirsty, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be bitten, beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die." is a description of what it meant that Jesus took on a human nature, lowering himself, coming to serve. And there's power in that. It sings to our souls, we want a king like that. Look at this this, as, as we close, this last thing. Other translations leave this out, and they're much better. This translation is not great here because they insert a word that confuses what was going on in the Son of God when he chose, when he came down. And it's in verse 6. It says, Who, though he was in the form of God, like almost contrasting, like even though he was in the form of God, you know, he didn't, he kind of was like weighing his options. And he was like, I'm not going to grasp onto that. I'm going to, and that's not, that's not what this really means. Instead of though it's because, because he was God. He did not consider his divinity, a thing to be grasped and used for himself and protected But to be leveraged to save sinners, to bring them home, to go down to obey the Father perfectly with his human flesh, redeeming human flesh, to die as a human on the cross, taking the penalty for human sin, and to raise again in human flesh, assuring all of those who are trusting in him of a new life to come. And it's the same in human flesh that we will wait for to return again and to make all things new. And that is the power of the incarnation. That's the power of the incarnation. Because when that reality is brought to bear on your soul, your desire is his desire. You become like him. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. Look at the one who took on human flesh for you. Who lived a perfect life for you. Who died your death. Who is risen and who is patiently waiting to return to embrace your resurrected flesh. To look into your eyes so that you can see by sight and not just by faith, how much He loves you, His creation. And that's what we look forward to. That's what we wait for. And so the rest of the series, we're going to be looking next week at the death of Christ. After that, the resurrection. After that, the return. So that we might better understand who it is who is in that manger in Bethlehem born to Mary. And Joseph. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you speak to us, that you don't just move in history, that you haven't just taken on human flesh, but that you use human words to help us understand who you are, to help us understand who you are as our Father who so desired our salvation that he sent his only son to. Understand who you are as the eternal son of God, who so desired to become obedient, to die, that he is much quicker to go to his death than we are to ask for the grace that he freely gives. And who you are as the spirit that is poured into our hearts, poured into our souls to help us have this mindset that belongs to Christ and is given to us as a gift. God, I ask that we would follow that, that we would love that, that we would yearn for it, and that we would get to know you better during this season. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.